Hello, Mercy House. Uh, this is Robert, your lead pastor, and uh, I am re-recording the sermon from this morning in my home. We had some uh, trouble this morning uh, with the recording, so just so folks that were able to be there can uh, tune in and listen, I'm going to go ahead and make this recording. And I, I wanted to welcome you to our church. I know some of you are first-timers to listening to this, and um, this is a new semester, and so lots of people are kind of checking things out. And so I just wanted to say briefly what it is that we do here at Mercy House. And if you were to boil down what we do here or what we're about uh, to a few words, I think those words would be gospel, family, and mission. Um, we want to be gospel-centered. I'll talk a little bit more about what that gospel is here in a minute. But not just gospel-centered, a gospel-centered family. We want to be family for each other, care for each other, know each other's lives. Uh, but also be a, a family on mission. And that mission is to make disciples who make disciples. We want to see that happening in uh, the campuses, on the campuses here in the five college area. We want to see that among the communities here. We want to see that among the unreached uh, people of the world. So what is this gospel? Well, this gospel, that, that word means good news. Um, it's so good, partly because of the bad news that it's a remedy for. The bad news is that human beings have rebelled against God. They've not only broken God's rules, but they've broken relationship with God. And because of that, they've broken themselves off from the source of life. And they have found themselves in a hopeless state, separated from God, broken down in their relationship with themselves, the others, with, with the earth. And so this separation, this death that they're experiencing uh, without any kind of intervention with God, would go on forever. Uh, it would be an eternal death. And that bad news really sets up the good news. And the good news is that Jesus, God's one and only Son, came to earth to live a perfect life and then take the place of sinners uh, by, by taking the penalty of sin on the cross. Um, that cross is what we see as the, the payment that's been made for sin and by trusting in what Jesus did, the work that Jesus did at the cross, uh, we are then forgiven. We're then given new life. We're reconciled with the life-giving God. And so not only do we see ourselves as saved from the penalty of sin, we see ourselves as saved uh, from the power of sin. And so we have this new life, this new power to live um, like Jesus did. And so this is what discipleship is, is learning how, how one is to follow Jesus, live like Jesus, and uh, this is a process. And, and so this is what this semester's sermon series is going to be on, called Follow. Uh, it's going to be all about what it means to follow Jesus from the book of Luke. And what does it mean to follow Jesus? Uh, does it mean learn about him? I mean, it, it includes that. Uh, does it mean sing songs to him and hang out with his people? Yeah, yeah it does mean those things. Um, but I think it, it, it means more than that. It doesn't mean less than that. Um, and I think when we, we look at some of the passages in Luke, we can see uh, Jesus is thinking about the essence of what it means to follow him. Uh, Luke 9.23, Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Um, so what is Jesus saying about following him. So he uses the image of a crucifixion victim, the image of death. Now, why does he do that? Well, he, he's saying that 
part of what it means to follow him is dying to your sinful self, denying yourself, he says. Um, and so there, there's a sense in which following Jesus is dying to your old life, dying to that old sin, uh, sinful self, and saying yes to Jesus. But even more than that, I think the context of the Roman Empire helps us understand better what Jesus is saying when he says, take up your cross, right? This idea of a crucifixion victim. Uh, those that were sentenced to crucifixion, uh, they had no rights. Like in our judicial system, someone's sentenced to death, they still have rights. They still get treated humanely, um, but not in the Roman Empire. Once you were sentenced to death, you had no rights. <clears throat> and so when uh, you were you know, carrying your cross to the place of crucifixion, people could spit on you, they could mock you, they could slap you, and there'd be no legal repercussion. And that was because you had no rights. And so when Jesus uses this image to talk about following him, he's saying you give up all rights and privileges. You no longer have sovereignty over your life. Jesus is now the sovereign king over your life. Now, of course, Jesus is not going to spit at you and mock you. He's a good king. He can be fully trusted to do what's good for you. But make no mistake, he's demanding everything. He's demanding everything. And so this, this gives us a picture of the essence of what it means to follow Jesus, to surrender everything. All rights and privileges are given away to Jesus. Now, some of you are saying, I know that. I know that. Um, and I hope this series will expand your understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. You'll get a better view of what Jesus is like, and then you'll also find a deeper understanding of what it means to follow him. But some of you are saying, I didn't know that, or I did, and I'm still not convinced. And so my hope is for you all that through our ex exploration of the book of Luke, you'll come to a place where you see how worthy Jesus is of that kind of surrender and you'll yield completely to Jesus. And that, that's actually where the, most, the deepest desires of your heart are fulfilled in the submitting to Christ as your king in response uh, to his saving. So in this sermon series, we're going to be looking at Luke chapters 1 through 11. The first four weeks will really make a case, Luke will make a case for why we should follow Jesus. And then the next 11 weeks will be more about how to follow Jesus. And um, this morning, we want to start with the case for why. Why? Why would we want to uh, surrender all rights and privileges to Christ as our king? And I would, I would argue that really all religions are asking to some degree for the submission of your entire life to their God or gods. In 2018, in, in uh, July, there was a, a, an event that was uh, sponsored in Northampton, and the event was the 85th birthday of the Dalai Lama. And so the Tibetan Buddhist monks came out. They were referring to the Dalai Lama as his holiness. They were singing songs to the Dalai Lama. They were bowing down on the ground uh, for the Dalai Lama. For the Dalai Lama, and they were uh, bowing to pray to him. I mean, these guys look very committed to their religion. And so I would say all religions are asking for uh, the complete surrender of the person uh, to that religion. Now, you may say, 
I'm not religious. Right? And I would argue that you are. Well, you may not be an affiliate of an official religion, but you're bowing down to something. You are giving your life for someone or something. Uh, you're going to lose your life to money or to a spouse or family or power or prestige or pleasure, something. I'd say it's part of being a human being. There's something in us that's hardwired that says that we are built to give everything uh, to something or someone. And the Bible teaches that that someone is Jesus. Now, why would we believe this? Why would we believe this? Why would we believe this any more than we would believe the Tibetan Buddhist monks and the Dalai Lama? Well, I think Luke gives us uh, several reasons why. We're going to just look at one today. Luke 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So again, that was Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, if you want to look along with me. And so reason 1 that we're going to talk about today, why we, we should believe in who Jesus says he is and we should submit to him and follow him and take up our cross, deny ourselves, all this kind of talk around following Jesus is because of what it says in the Bible. In particular, what it says in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And specifically, we're talking about what he's saying in the book of Luke. Now, I want to talk about three different characteristics or three, three different things that Luke is, is saying about his writing that I think will help us understand why it is that we should follow Jesus. So number one, Luke is saying that he is a contemporary of Jesus' followers. He says he's writing about these things that have been accomplished among us. I mean, this is a stunning admission by the author. He's not digging through, you know, he's not Googling for sources to write a term paper on Jesus. He's also not having just some mystical visions and dreams and then writing down, you know, the secrets of the universe. He's saying that he has access to the contemporaries of Jesus, and he is interviewing them. He is getting uh, primary source materials from them and writing this orderly account. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. It's kind of the second volume of this Luke-Acts uh, work, and he indicates in Acts that he was a traveling companion with Paul. In places like Acts 16, uh, verse 7, we see uh, Luke describing, uh, you know, things that Paul is doing. And he says, And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So he's talking about them as if he's just reporting the facts. And then later on, verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here he's saying that we are going, and he's called us to preach the gospel to them. 
It's also interesting that Luke doesn't report the death of Paul. He doesn't, doesn't report the martyrdom of Paul, which happened around A.D. 60s. Um, and you would think if someone was writing a long time after the death of Paul, they would have included that, but he doesn't. And so it seems to indicate that definitely Luke was a contemporary of the disciples of Jesus and also the apostle Paul. Other gospel writers were not only contemporaries of the disciples, but contemporaries of Jesus himself. So John, who wrote the Gospel of John, says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Later in the first uh, John, chapter 1, John says this, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We've seen it, testified to it, proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with you, was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So there, in a repetitive way, John's saying, we've seen him, we've touched him. And then he says it again, we've seen him, we've touched him. Like, like, it is important that these writers they want us to know that they were contemporaries with Jesus, or at the very least, contemporaries with those who had been with Jesus. So you may say, okay, okay, got it, got it. These guys, they're, they're contemporaries with Jesus, but how can we know that they're actually reporting something accurate about what happened in Jesus' life? And this, I think this is one of the, the most common arguments against the Christian faith. They say, well... Yes, you have these texts and, you know, these so-called eyewitnesses, but, but, but what they, they postulate is that these writers kind of souped Jesus up. They sort of spiritualized him, and really Jesus was kind of like the Dalai Lama, like he was just like, hey, be kind to everyone and, you know, give all religions, you know, the same kind of treatment. Uh, that, that Jesus really never talked about hell and, and never talked about morality and all these things that happen to be very offensive in our current cultural moment. Um, and, uh, they, you know, they like to add in, oh, this Bible is written by powerful white males who wrote the Bible. Oh, wait, you know, like these writers weren't white. They were Middle Eastern. Uh, they weren't powerful. They actually were some of the least powerful people in the Roman Empire, and there's a lot of evidence that Luke is actually using women as some of his sources for his gospel, which is unheard of in the ancient world. Um, and so the idea that these writers are like trying to pull the wool over someone's eyes and create their own religion is fairly ludicrous. I think one of the reasons for this as well uh, is that what did they receive from writing these gospels? Did they get a book deal and a megachurch job? No, they got tortured and they got killed. And, and so the idea that these guys are, are writing a souped-up or spiritualized version uh, is fairly ludicrous. So not only are they contemporaries of Jesus, contemporaries of Jesus' followers, but number two, they really are. Luke is seeking to compile an accurate account of what happened in the life of Jesus and his followers. Think about what Luke is saying here in his introduction. He says... Uh, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. I mean, how do you make an argument for something ha ha happening in the past 
when you don't have video, what, what's the next best thing? Eyewitnesses. And this is what he uses to build his case for what he's writing in the book of Luke. He says, having followed all things closely, he's letting us know, he has been painstaking in the way that he has approached this writing. He says that he's writing an orderly account. Again, more uh, language that, that seems to indicate he's been thorough, he's been careful. And, and then he's saying, why are you writing this, Luke? That you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. This doesn't sound like someone who's playing fast and loose and spiritualizing and taking history and making it into something that he uh, wants it to say. He is, he is taking his time to let us know that he is concerned about accurately communicating the facts. He's not the only New Testament writer to do this. So Paul, the apostle in 1 Corinthians 15, says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul uses this very technical language of delivering something that he received. And what did he deliver? The central tenets of the gospel. Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection. And how does he bolster his argument that these things are true? He mentions eyewitnesses, more than 500 that saw the resurrected Lord. And again, He's not appealing to some kind of mystical experience. He's appealing to historical facts of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, you may be asking, why, why is this so important? Why do Christians need there to be accuracy and historicity? Why can't it just be just a religious text and you get out of it what you get out of it? Well, because these facts inform the Christian faith. And this is the third idea that I want to draw your attention to. Luke believes in the theological meaning of the facts he's reporting. Again, I'll say it. Luke believes in the theological meaning, as believed by the church, of the things he's reporting. Uh, notice he says that, I want you to have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That word taught is translated from a Greek word, katekeo, which means to instruct, but not just instruct, it's to instruct religiously. It's where we get our word catechesis or catechism. And so he's letting them know this religious information that you've been taught, I want you to know it's certain because it's backed up with facts. And so Luke, is, he's going to patiently unveil the facts for us in an orderly account such that we... We'll say with Peter when we get to Luke chapter 9 and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? That we'll say with Peter, you're the Christ of God. This is Luke's hope. Not that you'll just get some facts for facts sake, but you understand the facts and then you'll exercise faith in those facts. Uh, Luke's not the only one, again, in the New Testament that's concerned about this. John 20 verses, 20, uh, verses 30, 31 says that, John writes this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You hear John doing the same thing. Hey, I'm writing you about these facts because I want you to believe. I want you to place faith. 
again, in Luke's uh, introduction, he says that these uh, people were eyewitnesses and ministers of the truth. And, and so this idea that not only were they eyewitnesses of the facts, but they were also preachers, ministers of the truth. So how should we respond to this? Well, it depends on who you are. If you're not a Christian, you're here investigating the faith, uh, welcome. I, I think this is a great sermon series for you to participate in. Uh, I would encourage you to take Luke up on his offer. He's saying he's got facts to present. Then say, okay, Luke, show me what you got. Consider him a uh, historian and journalist, and you look at the facts, look at his interpretation of the facts, and decide whether or not you think uh, what he's saying is true. I would encourage you to read one chapter out of Luke every week. This will keep you up uh, with the sermon text, and I think it's helpful to have read the text before you get here and you hear me preach on it. Um, there are also some journals that we've been selling on Sunday mornings that are like five bucks. We're not making any money off of this. We're just trying to help people uh, follow along. And so that'll help you with your reading of the scripture, but also taking notes uh, during the sermon. We're also encouraging people to join discipleship groups. Uh, the launch for these groups is Wednesday, February 5th, at 6 p.m. That's going to be happening at the church. Again, it's great to come to sermons. It's great to read on your own. It's also great to discuss what you're learning and the questions that you have with a few other people. And that's really what discipleship groups uh, are uh, about. So it may also be that you're ready to profess faith in Christ. Like you've, you've heard enough, you've read some, you've had some discussions, and you've come to the place where you say, actually, I do, I have enough certainty that I want to put my full faith and trust and what Jesus has done for me on the cross. I'd encourage you to do that, even now, to reach out to God in faith and, and ask Him for forgiveness of your sins, ask Him to give you a new life, and that you will surrender and follow Him. If, if you're at that place, I would encourage you to reach out to me or a staff member. Let us know that this has happened, because we would love to walk alongside you. Uh, I would encourage you to come every week, hear the, the sermons preached, but also to to get the Luke journal and to read a chapter a week. That's going to be incredibly helpful. And to join a discipleship group. Did I mention we're launching on February 5th, uh, 6 o'clock at the church? Uh, they would be a great place for you to begin working out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And then thirdly, you, you may be a Christ follower already. And if you are, I, I hope you'll be encouraged that your faith is not merely based on some kind of a mystical experience or emotions, although certainly mystical experiences and emotions are, can be a part uh, of our walk with Jesus, but that you have a certainty that you can enjoy when it comes to your faith. And I think our world right now is uncomfortable with any kind of certainty around religious truth claims. Uh, one of their favorite stories in, in academia and elsewhere when talking about this is the elephant story. And I think, I think this has been taken from a Hindu proverb or something. But the, the story goes like this. There's an elephant and three blind men who are trying to figure out what this elephant is. And so one of the blind men has a hold of the trunk. And it says, well, an elephant is like a tree. And then another blind man has his hands on the side of the elephant. and says, no, I think an elephant is like a wall. And then another blind man has his hands on the tail and says, no, I think an elephant is like a rope. <clears throat> and the, the 
the idea is that this is like the world's religions. That the world's religions are like these three blind men and that they all have a piece of the elephant or God and they know a little bit about God but they don't understand the whole picture. Now, a couple problems with this. One is um, it's fairly arrogant on the, the, the part of the person telling the story because they seem to indicate that in their... Uh, you know, illuminated state, they know the elephant and these poor religious people are just blind men kind of groping uh, for truth. But what Christianity is saying is actually the elephant has revealed himself to the blind. And that the way that God has revealed himself to blind humanity is through Christ. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 1, he says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's saying we can actually know who God is because God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. So I, I hope you'll be bolstered that the Christian faith has facts <laughs> that undergird it, that inform it, and, and that this will give you confidence in what you believe. And we never outgrow our need to understand better why we follow Jesus and how we follow Jesus. So I would encourage you as well, if you're already a Christ follower, to read a chapter of Luke every week, uh, to grab one of the uh, scripture journals to, to, to read and to make notes in and to take notes during the sermons, uh, but also to join a discipleship group. Again, we launch on February 5th, 6 p.m. at the church and we would love for you to enter into that, if you haven't already, uh, to learn more what it means uh, to follow Jesus.